Hey, this is Rick Such from Inside Music Cast. Before we get started with this week's Inside Music Cast, Eddie and I wanted to inform you that the Inside Music Cast blog site has been updated. Our site is even more informative, and now you can leave your own comments in the blog and interact with music fans around the world. You can check out the site at InsideMusicCast.com. As always, thanks for listening and subscribing to Inside Music Cast. And now, here's Inside Music Cast Episode 12, featuring drummer Pat Mastellato. Taking you inside the world of music, this is Inside Music Cast with Rick Such and Eddie Cabello. On this episode, Inside Music Cast welcomes Pat Mastellato. Welcome to Inside Music Cast, a podcast devoted to musicians, fans, and the people that make music happen. I'm Rick Such. And I'm Eddie Cabello. Welcome, everybody, from around the world. And as Rick mentioned, Inside Music Cast is devoted to bringing you candid interviews, news, and information with the musicians, fans, and people that make music happen. That's right. This is the podcast that goes beyond the pop star and features the talent behind the talent. So if you're ready, let's get started. A veritable drumming virtuoso, our guest very well may be one of the most active and sought-after session drummers around. From his session work in the early 70s with the likes of Bernie Taupin, Nick Gilder, Scandal, and Danny Wilde, to his 80s success with pop superstar act Mr. Mister, to his modern-day role as the drummer behind progressive rock band King Crimson, not to mention his amazing session discography with a countless variety of artists. It's easy to see how this musical diversity has contributed to the making of one of the most versatile musicians in the business. Inside Music Cast welcomes Pat Mastellato. Pat, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Hey, you know, I've been a, a real fan of your work for quite some time now, but I, you know, I really had no idea how extensive your discography was until I read your bio. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was growing up in the 80s, I was really into your work with Mr. Mister, but your stint with them, you know, from a discography standpoint, was only the tip of the iceberg. And right. Is it fair to say that your work, though, with Mr. Mister is what catapulted you into a, a drumming spotlight? Well, I'd sooner stay out of the spotlight. I like to be in the back, so <laughs> I don't want to be catapulted there. Um, you know, the success of that band, um, there were people that would view me differently after that. I, I certainly got more work after that. Some some people that maybe wouldn't have hired me before, just they hope there's a Midas touch thing that you mm-hmm. have success somewhere. You'll bring it to them, too. Yeah, we'll talk a little bit more about Mr. Mister later, but I want to go back to uh, the early days of your career. You posted a story in your bio about your first session that came within, you know, weeks after moving out to L.A. And it, I think it was a session, was it for Juice Newton? And uh, you recorded the project. It was released a, a year or two later. But when it was released, you discovered that your parts had been replaced by <laughs> Jeff Percaro and Hal Blaine. And did you ever find out what happened with that gig and why your parts were replaced? No, no, no. But I, I'm quite certain what I was involved with was cutting their demo. I didn't understand the difference in those days. Um, I, I had met them through an ad, I think a guitar center, like just a pinned-up ad on a wall, uh, when I'd had one quick rehearsal with them, did a showcase with them the next day at the Troubadour. They used to call them Hoot Nights, but they had sort of songwriting, some sort of BM, BMI fest or something. And uh, a few days later, they called me. I didn't know any of them besides those two or three days we were together to do this, the rehearsal and the gig and, uh-huh. and uh, invited me to go in the studio with them. It was with uh, Bones Howell producing, the guy did the association, Mom was a pop, was a bunch of old 60s stuff, classic stuff. And uh, the session was at ABC Dunhill, which, you know, to me was a big deal because of Steely Dan. And uh, we cut uh, as many songs as we knew, 10 or 15 songs, you know, in an afternoon and a few hours. Uh, and I was naive enough to think that that was the record. Uh, <laughs> but in reality, that was that was her demos. Um, 
I guess you probably cut those for ABC, but I'm not really sure. And and then that record you're referring to came out a few years later on Capitol, and then it wasn't until even a few years after that she was on RCA is when she had her hits. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't think the record she did on Capitol did that well anyway. But Speaking of uh, Jeff Procaro, I just mentioned his name. By chance, did you ever have an opportunity to meet or, or work with him? And what were your thoughts about him if you did? Well, he's a sweetheart. I did meet him early on. I met him when I was about 18. Um, a producer that I was just starting to work with, an artist that was on Discreet on Zappa's label called Discreet. He was in uh, recording it, uh, what they call cello now, it was Ocean Way for a while, but back in those days it was called United Western. Uh-huh. And uh, the producer was working there and, and suggested I might want to come down and see a you know, pro session to kind of learn better how to approach the artist he was working mm-hmm. with. And that session had, uh, had Jeff on drums, so I was able to sit on the couch and watch that go down. And then uh, I met Jeff a few times after, uh, and he was always really sweet, but by the time I was in the Misters, you know, Jeff was a was a yo-cat we called him out in L.A. You know, the A-team guys were yo-cats, and, uh, and Richard Page and Steve George from Mr. Mr. Van were definitely yo-cats. So uh-huh. they were in that same clique. So uh, hung, uh, you know, more with, with Jeff. Uh, Jeff was always street, uh, sweet guys. Steve Lukather would scare me a little bit. So I, I didn't hang some of the opportunities I had. I was a little afraid to... Uh, see where that might lead me, you know, ruin my marriage or something. So I didn't hang as much as I could have. Uh, but, yeah, I never worked with Jeff, uh, straight up with Jeff, but ran into him, you know, several times in the hallways and hung, and, and he was always just really, really sweet. And uh, uh, the last time I saw him was in, in Germany. Uh, he was playing with Toto. I was playing with the Rembrandts, and we were uh, on a festival date together, and uh Without getting into the details of it all, he was extremely sweet to me. Woke him up in the morning, and he was he was he was, uh, he was very kind to me. <laughs> I want to ask you about some of the guys that really influenced your drumming, uh, Pat, Jim Keltner, um, James Gadson, Jim Gordon. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about how you've absorbed? I mean, even Jeff. I mean, I'd like to know what uh, did he contribute a little bit of while you were listening as to what ended up being the style or your techniques as as Pat. You know. Um, today, you know, it's, we're all just a stew, I guess. Musicians, people in general, you know, we're just a stew of all these influences. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, to put one guy higher or lower up the list, it, I mean, there's people in bar bands that I, I don't even know their names that I saw for a few minutes and walked out of a club that I learned things from. Yeah. Sometimes you learn things not to do, but just just you know, little things that you pick up. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, it's a, it's an endless list of. Uh, Musical influences, not even not just drummers, you know, just just everything. Uh, you know, as a as a as being really young when I first started to play, it was it was Ringo and, and Ginger Baker was was monumental to me. I right. remember I was probably in about seventh or eighth grade and carving Ginger Baker's name in the bunk bed on my brother's bunk above me. Just <laughs> Ginger is God or something. I don't know what I put. But, mm-hmm. I do that too, but Ginger's actually the name of my wife, so it's a little different situation. <laughs> <laughs> hey, um, producer Mike Chapman, who was one of the foremost producers in the world back in the 70s and 80s, called on you many times for session work. And how did you hook up with Mike and what projects did you work for with him? Yeah, I'm surprised a lot of people now don't even know who Mike was, mm-hmm. uh, you know, through Chen and Chap. He, he was as much a songwriter as a producer. And uh, he was Australian. A lot of people that do know of Mike assume that he was English because Nicky Chen was English, but Mike mm-hmm. was, was an Aussie. Um, they got a record label, Chen and Chap. It was called Dreamland, and it was I think it was under RSO, Robert Stiglitz label, or uh, Casablanca. 
Okay. I can't remember how all these things fit together at the time, but there was a few labels then. A lot of money was invested in starting this label for, for Mike and Nikki that was called Dreamland. And they went out and signed, uh, I think they pretty much just signed four artists. Um, they were still doing Blondie and the Knack and a lot of uh-huh. things on the side, but they signed four artists to their label Dreamland, uh, a group called Nervous Rex and Spider out of New York. And Spider had Anton Fig on drums, who everybody knows now from the Letter Room Band, and mm-hmm. uh, Holly Knight was in the band, uh, songwriter that just was written tons of hits. And on the West Coast, they signed a girl named Shandy and a girl named Holly Penfield, and I happened to be working with both. Um, my routine in those days was to take every gig I could get and, <laughs> uh, and keep it, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, they weren't, either one of them, working that much. Shandy, we had quite a following. We, we would do a Monday night thing, uh out in the valley in Studio City that developed a huge following, but Holly's band was pretty much just in the studio. And uh, so the coincidence of them both getting picked up by Mike and Nikki on their new label was strange. And then when they invited us in to have some meetings, you know, the girls came in first for their meetings. They were the artists that got signed, but they they wanted to bring their bands in and meet them. And they realized they had the same drummer in both bands. And uh, actually Mike had signed Shandy, or brought Shandy in, and Nikki had signed uh, Holly. So they had a little disagreement between them about who got the drummer because they made it clear to me I couldn't participate in both projects. Mm-hmm. So I, I chose to work with, with Holly right then and uh, continued to you know be friends with everybody. And Shandy got another drummer, actually went through several drummers. And then when it came time for her to record, uh, I think the first or second day of tracking, they let the drummer they had go. Mm-hmm. And somehow between Mike and Nikki, they gave me permission to, to cut her record you know, have a, have a week's leave from Holly's band to do that record or whatever it was, something like that. Right. And through doing that, uh, just started to do more work with Mike. I mean, I, I really appreciate that he just took a chance on me. I was just... Mm-hmm. You know, Mike didn't like studio drummers, per se. He used to say that quite often at the time, you know, that he wanted garage band kids. He wanted, you know, anxiety and, and yeah. you know, that, that adrenaline in his recording, and he didn't yeah. want to hire the, the classic, you know, Jeff Lecaro or... Keltner, whoever, that was lucky for me. Uh, he spun some some sessions, yeah. some side work off to me. There was a band that spun out with uh, Holly Knight, and Michael DeBars, uh, and Prescott from the Knack. We put a band together. They put the band together. I joined them. Uh, Mike hooked me up to do sessions with Bernie Top and Elton John's, uh, you know, lyricist. He did some solo records. Mm. Uh, that record never came out, but we, we did about five tracks. Uh, did some demos for Cher. Did, did a lot of demos for Mike songs he was writing. He wrote Love is a Battlefield around that time. We, we cut that track. It was around, the, I guess, right around the 80s. Um, wasn't it uh, Kim Bullard from Poco that uh, led you and you crossed paths with Richard Page and, and Steve George, right? Yeah. Yeah, I'd known Kim since I moved to L.A. when I was about 17 or 18. So mm-hmm. it was about 74, straight out of high school. And there were a couple guys that I met right away in that band that was uh, with, with Frank's label Discreet. It was a a kid from Georgia named Bryant Sterling, and his keyboard player was Kim, who was mm-hmm. also from Atlanta, or near Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, the bass player was Eric Nelson. He went on to play with the guys from Kiss and uh, Nick Gilder right. and some other things. So we were, you know, in, in these bands when we were 18 or 19, so then maybe five years later, it's probably more like about 82, that uh, Kim rang me up. He'd been playing in a band with Steve Ferris and had heard about uh, the Pages guys. Uh, yeah auditioning drummers for, I guess, close to a year they'd been auditioning drummers. So. They auditioned for over a year. 
Yeah, they they were they were a little picky. <laughs> I would say so. Well, it was just around the time. I mean, it was uh, um, you know, once you 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 got the gig. I mean, basically, Mister Mister, it it appeared, correct? Well, we when I got the gig, the band was still to be Pages. They mm-hmm. were signed to Capital. They'd been on Epic before that with a couple of records that had flopped, and they were on Capital. I was a little nervous about even auditioning because Vinny Caliuta had played on the previous record. I knew I couldn't play those parts, but Kim stressed to me that they were trying to change the format of the band a little bit, and uh, for lack of a better replica, it would sort of be Hall and Oates, where you had a solid band, uh, consistent band, you know, G.E. Smith and, and uh, mm-hmm. can't remember the, the rest of the Hall and Oates band of the 80s, but uh, Mickey Curry, they were the same band, uh, T-Bone Walk, the bass player, mm-hmm. they were always the the Hall & Oates band, even though Hall & Oates was the signed artist. Right. And uh, Pages had gone through to a lot of session players and had trouble keeping them when they had a live date to do. So uh, they decided to try and form more of a rock band and, and keep the rhythm section solid. So when I auditioned, uh, they'd given me a couple tapes that uh, demos. Um, I think Mike Barrett had played drums or a drum machine. What I guess got me the gig, because I've talked to him since later, they said, because I could play along with the drum machine they've been going for about a year without a drummer and they had a lindrum mm-hmm. and um they said most of the drummers that came in couldn't couldn't play in time with it and uh they were, they were asked to leave so i got lucky <laughs> that i could just keep up with what they had programmed in their box and uh, i was supposed to bring a bass player i was bringing james rolleston he just got off the road with rye cooter and he had a, a toothache or something he went to the dentist so he never showed up for the audition <laughs> and um I had I was working a day gig at that time, and I had to be back to work. So they were auditioning me like at the lunch hour or something, and uh, so they could audition me. Rich Page pulled down a bass. Uh, he wasn't intending to be the bass player. He was going right. to be a stand-up singer and uh, double on keyboards and guitar and different things. But he played bass to audition me, and um, you know the chemistry was real immediate. We they already had songs, and uh, you know I could play them reasonably well, even not having heard most of them. And uh, they had a manager walk in and say, great, four-piece, we love it, you know, as if it was a concept, it wasn't. <laughs> and, uh, you know, agent came in later, and the producer, uh, Peter McKean, that had just done minute work, came in, Same, each one, same reaction, mm-hmm. uh, you know, great, four-piece, new direction, love it, you know. Right. They had been signed, their A&R guy was uh, Bobby Columbia, that was the drummer from Blood, Sweat, and Tears, and he'd signed Jocko and Richard Marks, different people over the years with different labels, but he right. was... Uh, uh, quite a fan of Rich and Slug and, and uh, had signed them to Capitol and was part of that. But he was there also. All these guys were there at that audition, a little tiny room with about 12 people in there. Mm-hmm. But, you know, what? tell me this. I, I, this is something I didn't plan to ask you, but it, it just popped into my head. But Mr. Mister, where did that name come from? I don't know the story behind that. Well, uh, as soon as they realized they weren't going to be pages anymore, they needed a name, and we were doing some gigs around town to kind of just get the band going we needed a name and we sat at rehearsal one day richard came in and said oh i've got this great idea for a name we'll call it i think it was dial m like dial m for murder something like that uh-huh. and um, we kind of everybody poo-pooed that and we just sort of went around in a circle with our road crew and manager trying to think of of a better name and at some point somebody said we're all huge weather report fans and yeah. somebody maybe looked at the cassette sitting across the room and said, Mr. Gone, after the name of that uh, weather report mm-hmm. record. 
and somebody else said Mr. Long, somebody said Mr. Dong, whatever it was, and uh, as the thing went around the room, I was the guy that said Mr. Mister, the next guy said Mr. Sister, kissed her blister on around, we went. At the end of the day, that was the name that was still being joked about, so we, we stuck with that, and once we got our record deal, uh, first thing RCA asked was that we change the name, and so we did try for quite a while to come up with something better. Um, they ran some contests out there on K-Rock and different radio stations to help a band find a name and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> anyway, it's, uh, we didn't change it. So the name stuck, huh? <laughs> better or for worse, it stuck. I guess so. Well, your first uh, Mr. Mr. album was called I Wear the Face. And it, that was a, I thought it was a fantastic debut. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. It, it didn't garner the commercial success that followed with the band's second release. And uh, did you or any of the other members of the band have any idea that Welcome to the Real World would have had as much success as it did. I mean, the album went to number one, and the two singles, right. Kyrie and Broken Wings, were also number one hits. No, we didn't. We didn't really have any idea. If anything, we thought the first record was uh, was the shoe in. We had Peter McKeon, who'd done the Minute Work record producing. Mm-hmm. We had a big uh, triad agency come on board and get us opening slots with uh, Adam Ant, Eurythmics, and Madness, and uh, you know. We had a lot of, of uh, tour support from the label. In hindsight, it was a very calculated to be a hit kind of record that, that you know, we just kind of got pushed in that direction by management, the record company, everybody. And as a result of that, when it came time to make the second record, we just sort of did, you know, we're, we're just going to make it ourselves. Let's find an engineer that we like. doesn't have to be a big name. We found Paul Devillier that was mixing Yes Live. Uh, he had produce a record with a guy named Mark Jordan that I've also worked with at the time. We were managed with the same guy, with George Gisman, as both. And uh, Mark Jordan had lost his record deal, so George knew that uh, that this engineer from South Africa, Paul Davillier, was available. Mm-hmm. And we all drove down to see a, a show of Yes uh, at Irvine Meadows and, and meet Paul. And we really liked him, so we said, well, let's just take a chance like this and we'll kind of make a, a, a low-budget record. You know, at the time, would have been a few hundred thousand dollars, sure. nothing like we get now. I think we actually only cut three songs to start with, Paul. We, we cut Broken Wings as one of those three off the bat, and, and then the record company you know, proved us to carry on and produce ourselves and, mm-hmm. uh, with Paul Engineering and co-producing. And, right. and, uh, no, we didn't know that record would be a hit at all. Well, when you broke away from Peter McKeon, um, I mean, one of the reasons that must have been is that he was he was pretty methodical in the way he produces album. I, mean, I think weren't, weren't there certain characteristics of even the recording of the drums? I mean, I mean, he was uh, working really hot with Minute Work uh, at that time, like you said. And, How did you uh, hear I mean, this? <laughs> I mean, we hear the little birds here and there, but I read that uh, he was a real stickler, you know. On I mean, even on the on the mics on your your set, and tell us a little bit about that because he was almost a formula engineer. I don't know how much of a formula he'd gone down to Australia. He had a, a Stevens recorder in those days. It was a, was a nice tape recorder that we'd fold up in a suitcase, and he went to the outback down there. And I don't know if he discovered Men at Work, but several Aussie bands that he produced. Um, he did sort of have the way he liked to do things, and he mm-hmm. was definitely the guy in charge when we made the record. Right. And um, for me as a drummer, this is very boring for anybody that's not a drummer, probably, but. He wasn't into my, I can't remember exactly what my kit would have consisted in those days, an old Ludwig kit or something. Um, so he brought in, uh, I think his name was Jerry, the Minute Work drummer. He he grabbed his drums from him, um, <laughs> and he wanted me to play all timbales. So we, I had a pair of timbales, some nice old uh, Humberto Morelli's 
timbales, but we went down to Guitar Center someplace and rented the oversized and the smaller uh, uh, timbales so we could have maybe six of those <laughs> uh, instead of tom-toms. Uh, he was, I set up a little bit crooked. I've always, uh, I guess because when I was a kid, I was so into Ginger Baker and Keith Moon, I played double bass. Mm-hmm. So my setup on a, with a single bass drum is usually a little off-center um, I could never play very well with the rack toms in the post inside the kick drum. I usually put them on a stand okay. off to the left, uh, you know, as if you had two bass drums. They'd be a little. So all this meant that uh, the stereo imaging didn't work right for Peter. So he had me push everything, I guess, further to the right to where everything would center better for him. Uh, he built these strange baffles. He wanted more isolation around every drum. We actually built a foam baffle between every timbali. So if you did a drum fill from you know high to low, you had to pull the sticks back about four inches before you could approach the second drum, and back wow. about four inches to come to, to get around these little baffles that mm-hmm. separated mm-hmm. every drum. He built a huge baffle around the hi hat to isolate it from the snare drum. And if you play drums, you'll you'll know that makes it really difficult to get your left or right hand over mm-hmm. to the. Mm-hmm the hi-hat. Yeah. Uh, he built a, a tent for the kick drum, which is not unusual, but his tent uh, not only went in front of the kick drum, but it went behind, so it went out over my leg <laughs> to try and keep the bottom of the snare from going into the kick drum. It, wow. was, it was a pretty elaborate thing. <laughs> uh, we were recording at a brand new room at Westlake. Uh, they had a lot of success with Michael Jackson and stuff, and I think they just built this room. We were the first people in there, and there actually it was a very dead carpeted room and I'd been making these records with, with Mike Chapman and Peter Coleman, English-sounding records, you know, a lot more ambient recording and more distant yeah. miking. Very, very different than what we went into there in a very dead R&B-type uh, room with this really mm-hmm. elaborate, uh, microscopic, dead, dry drum sound. And uh, there wasn't even a place big enough with a flat surface to set my drum kit. <laughs> uh, it was a carpeted floor, but it had these wood panels in, in squares all around the room so the drums were uneven. It was it was it was a bit uh, uncomfortable. And the most extreme example of this is he used a, a, a Sure 57. It's a very common mic on mm-hmm. the snare drum, and he insisted on using black dot heads. Uh, remember, in those days, there were black dot on the yeah. head. about a four-inch black dot. He liked to mic the black dot. <laughs> he brought that 57 all the way in over the drum. You know, Mike Chapman or people I've been working with, they usually mic the drum out on, at the shell, uh-huh. which most people do now, you know. And then if they have a hard time getting a drum sound with Mike or Peter, they would pull the mic away. Right. Uh, Peter was just the opposite. He just, everything was, he wanted to be right where the stick made contact with the head. It was, Holy cow. And the end result of that is, first day of tracking, I hit the microphone, you know, within a few bars of the first take and broke broke the, uh, the plastic cap off of it when flying across the room. But it's a big studio. They've got more of the mics. They bring it out. We play a few more bars. I break another one. Uh, I don't know how long it took, but I went through every mic they had in the closet, every 57. Every 57. Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't a good first impression to the other misters. We'd probably known each other a month or two by then. And, uh, so for you, Welcome to the Real World was uh, really a breath of fresh air in a way. Oh, yeah. Cause, cause, <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. De Villiers was quite the opposite. He's uh, South African. He'd moved to America via Canada, but uh, he had very different miking techniques uh, mm-hmm. on some of the stuff on Real World. The drums, we did all the drums in pieces. 
Um, there's, I don't think there's any place on the record where an entire kit was played. It was just go do the snare drum, do the hi-hat, do the toms. All those were separate. But it meant that we could move the mics way back. So uh, you know, some of the big sounds on Kyrie and stuff, those, those mics are 20 or 30 feet away from the source. And then we just we learned at that time how to flip the tape, the two-inch tape upside down, put a delay on it, reprint the sound, flip the tape back over. Now the sound is really early, and uh, yeah. you use a delay to bring it back in time because uh, that distance of 30, 40 feet is, is about 30, 40 milliseconds. Um, it, it's a huge, you know, too too sloppy to use unless you... And those now you just use Pro Tools. You just cut and bring it up. <laughs> but on those days, it was a little bit more difficult to make it... Uh, line you know to where it should have been played at well that's interesting to learn about you know how your set was mic'd uh because that's one thing i've always noticed about mr mister's recordings and i didn't know if he had any influence on the actual mix itself but your kit is always way out front it's just a big bold straightforward you know sound that is on a lot of those songs on those albums yeah i mean i i don't know just that's just where we were at but i mean we were blessed to have de Villiers. he was a great engineer and, and not a typical L.A. engineer or even New York engineer. He had very different, he's very much into Queen and, and a lot of British bands and same thing to get a lot of ambience on the drum kit. Well, after your success on Welcome to the Real World, you followed up with Go On and that happens to be one of my favorite, actually it is my favorite of the, of the three albums of yours. And stylistically, it was it was really similar to Welcome to the Real World and, and there were certainly songs on there that were radio friendly and, and could have been big hits, you know, like Stand and Deliver, Healing Waters, those, Watching yeah. the World Power Over Me. Why do you suppose this album didn't have the commercial success its predecessor did? Because the record company wasn't behind it. They just it didn't support it. It's kind of a cliche it. thing to say, but um, during the time when Broken Wings and uh, Welcome to the Real World was happening. The president of uh, RCA was Jose Menendez, mm-hmm. the guy that was shot by his kids. Uh-huh. And he left the label towards the end of that record. Uh, they brought in a, uh, a new president, I forget his name, from, from Canada, uh, from RCA. But in that time, the next year or so before we made the record you're talking about, go on. RCA was bought by NBC, was bought by GE, was bought by Bertelsmann Music or BMG. <laughs> So the the whole offices, all the offices down there on Sunset, they changed three or four times. Mm. Different A and R people, presidents, so everybody, uh, the people that go work your records, the uh, what we call our promo guys, and all that. It seemed like everybody was gone. And uh, by the time we released that record, I think it was Bob Buziak, um, who I don't know personally, but I don't think he was much interested in our band. Um, he didn't sign us. He didn't, you know, have any. Any uh, anything to gain? It was other acts that he had moved on to. Mm-hmm. I think he signed Michael Penn and some other you know great things, but I, I don't think he had much interest to us. That's interesting story because we interviewed David Page from Toto mm-hmm. about you know a month ago, and right. his story was very similar. You know, right after Toto Four, you know, the, which was a huge you know success, they followed up with Isolation, and it was just almost the exact same story you told. You know, uh, the record company just didn't get behind it. There were changes and. Mm-hmm. At record companies, and uh, you know, it's it's just kind of ironic. Yeah, the bottom fell out and, of the company, and and there you have a command. Can all the different types of products that sort of fell out and uh, on the wayside? I mean, I really felt that go on. I, um, reiterating what what Rick said is that it, it was a phenomenal album. It really was. Um, I'm kind of too close to it all to really know. I, I remember all the tension within the band. While we were making the record, we mm. come off a very successful record. There was an expectation, and, sure. and um, 
we had played most of that material live, so we, we had a good feel that most of the material would, would work. And, you know, I, I guess if anything, we were a little bit cocky that we'd have a successful record just based on what had happened the preceding year. Uh, so it was pretty naive of us, you know, to, but it, it didn't happen that way. And right. I think it wasn't long after the record came out that Steve left. Mm-hmm. I can't remember that we toured a whole lot after Go On. You know, overall, Mr. Mister's music, you know, and I want to talk about maybe, I mean, standing away from it a little bit. It's uh, a lot of the music seemed to have some very interesting spiritual overtones, you know, songs of Kyrie and on a song, uh, I guess, even on, on Go On, uh, Man of a Thousand Dances and uh, Healing Waters. And um, talk to us a little bit about, uh, I mean, were you in line as to um, the, the messages that were sort of undercurrents with the music? Uh, were you in involved with the collaboration and you know tell us a little bit about the real messages behind the song they were wonderful well you're talking about the lyric I, i'm yeah. i'm obviously more involved in the, the music and sure. and we co-wrote a lot of stuff as a band and and found our own parts on the songs that rich and slug would bring in but there was a uh, another component to the band john lang he was richard's cousin and he was a lyricist hmm. with the band so he was our fifth member but he wasn't on stage gotcha. um as far as the religious you know, spiritual is probably a better word. Yeah, but right, I mean, we were right. all raised in the church. I went to eight years of Catholic school. Rich grew up, I guess, as a Baptist, or I don't know what, but his his family would sing in the church since mm-hmm. he was a little kid. Um, I think we were all individually, like most people, looking for sure. some sort of spiritual awareness. Um, and it wouldn't be surprising that, that John and, and Rich's lyrics would tilt in that direction. Uh, I can remember touring, especially in the Midwest, in the Bible Belt, when we were touring with Tina Turner. She's a Buddhist, um, and they were picketing her uh, outside of gigs in St. Louis and Mm -hmm. Arkansas and different places. Um, At the same time, they were uh, kind of globbing on to Mr. Mr. as if we were a spokesperson for for the (laughs) Christian uh, movement. And uh, we'd be asked sometimes, it quite startled and surprised us, but... uh, some of these interviewers started to ask us why were we were hiding our uh, our Christian, uh, <laughs> you, you know, why we didn't wave this banner. They would try to explain to us groups like U2, they're having great success, you know, by embracing their Christian beliefs. Right. And uh, why are you guys, you know, hiding it, that you're saying it, but you won't come out and say that, you know. Well, we weren't a Christian band. We'd still go home and get high. We were just normal people. You know, it wasn't. We weren't on any agenda to go promote, you know, any any religion. Your songs just happen to have just a spiritual. Well, it's not an accident. I, uh, these were the the topics that you know most interested Rich and John. Uh, I know they were heavily reading uh, Cahil Gibran, the, the Prophet, was a, was a very important book to them around that time. That's where the the lyric for Broken Wings comes much out of that book. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, it's it's amazing to think about it, but we never never crossed our minds recording the song, the, the reference to the Beatles song, mm-hmm. Blackbird Takes Broken Wings. Right. Um, it was later when people started to accuse us of having ripped off the Beatles that we sort of were like, whoa, it, there is sort of a similarity there. We didn't, you know, we weren't even thinking about it. Right. Um, well, of all things, John Lang, who wrote the lyric, he's not a Beatles fan. He's not you know, I'm I'm a Beatle freak, but it didn't even hit me. But uh, it was John who later kind of researched and, and thought, you know, when I look at where the Beatles were when they did the White Album, they'd just gone off to India, 
and there's you know documented stuff about them referring to uh, reading Cahill Cabron around that mm-hmm. time. So most likely, both of them were influenced by the same source. You know, it's it's funny because I remember when I first uh, heard these songs. Um, you know, back then there were some pretty on the edge type of contemporary Christian radio stations, and and actually I I heard Healing Waters on the the CCM stations before, and I mean they they embraced it because it was relative to them, and I think you know music is is relative. You know, you can connect with it in a certain way. I guess you can't blame anybody for loving your music, but uh, you know I guess it wasn't intentional, and I mean it it just it was just wonderful. It was the, the well, music. it wasn't unintentional, but we we weren't. We weren't, uh, you know, trying to be a flag waver for yeah. the Christian right. Um, sure. That song, Healing Waters, we got a Grammy nomination for Best Gospel Song. Mm-hmm. So we were shocked, you know. <laughs> well, like, I didn't know that. We took some gospel singing, uh, a vocal choir, yeah, right. and the chorus, I guess, they attached itself to that. It was an amazing song. It really was an amazing song. Do you still keep in contact with uh, Richards and Steve? I do, a little bit, mostly with, with uh, George. The manager is, is a good friend, and we... We chat about things quite yeah. often when I need some counsel, of, you know, I'll buzz with him or uh, just to chat about things. He's, he's the one the most in contact and rich and slug and uh, and to a lesser degree, Ferris. I haven't right. talked to Ferris much. but uh, right. Well, I have one more Mr. Mr. question and then we'll move on. And, and this pertains to uh, your fourth album project. I guess this happened after Steve Ferris left and it was called Pull. Right. That was never released, but is there any chance that it might see the light of day? Well, it's out there as bootlegs and stuff already. Um, we've had a couple opportunities to put it out on some small little labels. Um, I don't really know. This is uh, more where the legality falls of who owns it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really a great record. I think I don't even know where the masters are anymore. You know, they end up in some vault, and we never see them. But we we went back to make the record with Paul Devillier. And before we started the record with Paul um, as a trio with Paul, we we all uh, went up in the caves in Topanga Canyon and dropped mushrooms and uh, had a long powwow about how we were going to uh, not finish, you know, not not give the record company the record until we felt like we were done with it, and that we all did our little, uh, you know, blood brother pact up there in the in the caves about how. Uh, you know, we wouldn't we wouldn't let it go half baked. If any one of us had a problem, you know, we'd make sure we were all four happy with it. Well, what a better way to close things out than with my. That was friends. our way to toast the send off <laughs> of the record. Yeah, five years later, I think we finally finished it, and the label dropped us. So. <laughs> you know, I'd like to jump over uh, in a little bit of time there and and explain to us a little bit about um, you know, let's talk about King Crimson. Um, how did you actually connect, uh, you know, with uh, Robert and Adrian? How how did you become a member of it? Well, Robert invited me in is the short answer. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. I met Robert the year before we toured together with David Sylvian as the Sylvian Fripp Band with Trey and Michael Brook. And that came about in a very strange way that um, there was a magazine out in L.A. called The Recycler. I was selling a piece of gear in The Recycler or trade for question mark. And uh, there was another piece of gear in there that was being sold or trade for question mark. And I called this guy up and said, would you like to swap you know, my compressor for your Leslie cabinet? He said, sure. I went over, met the guy, got the Leslie cabinet. Uh, his name is Bill Forth. He's, he's you know, making this long chain of people connect. Anyway, it all started for me with Bill Forth, um, who happened to know Robert. Bill was a crafty guitarist. He knew Steve Ball and... Uh, uh, the whole click, Trey mm-hmm. Gunn, and mm-hmm. uh, 
So we said goodbye, and he called me later that evening, so it would have been a Thursday night, and said, hey, I forgot to give you an adapter or power cable or something, the on-off switch to that cabinet. So he swapped by the next morning early and gave me that, and he said, hey, you might want to know about this gig with Sylvie and Fripp, that uh, they're going to be auditioning drummers. And uh, I said, who do I call? And he said, well, I only have one connection. It's it's Trey Gunn. Um, So I called Trey. I didn't know him. He didn't know me, and he was in New York. And uh, he, I, I asked, you know, how would I get an audition for this? When were the auditions? And Trey pretty much said, "Don't bug me. The auditions are, you know, in about three or four days. They're over in England at Real World Studios, so it's impossible for you to get there and leave me alone." And uh, I said, "Well, give me the manager's phone number, somebody else." And Trey's like, "You know, stop bugging me. Here's the guy, Richard Chadwick. You know now." You know, bug off, i got a pack, I'm getting on a plane in a few minutes. And I called the manager over in England, Richard Chadwick, and uh, asked if I could get an audition. And um, he said, well, you won't know the material, uh, the auditions are just in three or four days, You won't. we can't afford to bring you over here, it's too far away, it's, it's just not logistically possible. And I said, uh, well, I'll fly myself over, that won't be an expense for you, I'll get myself there, you just tell me what time... <laughs> Don't worry about that part of it. And uh, I said, I, I've done some recording for people at Virgin, and I know people down at the Virgin Record Company, and David Sylvian was on Virgin. I said, chances are good I can ring somebody up, and they'll uh, uh, possibly let me have an advanced copy of the CD. So he, he either said yes right then, or he said, let me call you back. And he called me back a few minutes later and said, mm-hmm. okay, come on. And uh, what I didn't mention to him was uh, there's a station out there, KCRW, great radio station in L.A., NPR station, and they had played a few tracks off the Sylvian Flip record a few weeks before that. I'd heard them in the car. Um, so I had some idea that the material was something that I could play. It wasn't as complicated or as intimidating as what I would have thought about trying to play Crimson material. So that's the short story. I, I ran over the hill to Virgin and got a a cassette, and I cashed in all the frequent flyer miles I had and booked a flight, I think, for Saturday, the following day. Had the one day at home to uh, prepare as much as I could, play along with the tape and make notes, and uh, I stayed with a friend uh, outside of London and uh, continued to study the tape all night, took a train out to Real World on Monday or Tuesday, and uh, had that audition. I never thought I'd get the gig. I thought it was just a a pretty grand opportunity Mm -hmm. to... uh, get to play with Robert, you know, he's, he's an icon to me, and yeah. uh, I, I didn't think we'd hang or anything, I just thought it was just a, just a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to play with the guy for half an hour. On some of the King Crimson recordings, you were playing in tandem with Bill Bruford, right? Yeah, the first three or four years was a double trio. What was that like playing with him as opposed to your situation mm. now where it's just you? Yeah. I loved playing with Bill. It yeah. was great. It was really, really great. Uh, it's kind of like an arcade game. Pinball, pinball game were just really on your toes and uh, part of the thing that Bill and I established is kind of a ground rule traditionally most double drummer bands the drummers play a lot in unison and we decided right away not to do that hmm. we decided that would be the last option we, you know, our options would be to play if you will opposing parts or parts that played in the cracks of each other uh, to play in different time signatures allowed that to happen. For me, a lot of times, you know, I, I would be more the clock. You know, I, I'd 
support more of the heavy kick drums and the backbeats and let Bill skirt around those things and not have to anchor himself so much. It was just a real obvious approach because I was a heavier hitter and more locked into the pulse, and, and Bill was a bit more of a rhythm terrorist, you know. How involved are you uh, with the development of songs with King Crimson? It depends on the song. Yeah. I mean, in general, in King Crimson, every musician makes up his own parts. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the songs come out of jams, in, improvisations, and you identify things you like, and you try to arrange them and organize them into a song. Um, several songs in the Crimson Repertoire, Robert brings in his basic parts, and then we have to develop our own parts around that. If you think about Robert's playing, it's, it's not the typical strumming guitar player. You know, he's, he's playing these single line figures. Um, so it's it's a challenge sometimes to figure out what, you know, groove, if you, you know, for lack of a better word, but what, what kind of rhythm section to put behind those things. It takes an awful lot of experimentation with that, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, you burn out people with all those experimenting. Sure. It would work well sometimes that we get uh, Robert or Adrian or, or get their part on tape, uh, even just rehearsal tape. And Trey and I, if you're right. talking about the, you know, 2000 version of the band where we became the rhythm section, we'd, we'd try to get them on tape. Um, and we'd spend a lot of time before and after rehearsal working on our parts, mm-hmm. um, you know, pretty meticulously, mathematically at times, you know, figuring out uh, you know, if these guys are going to play in five and they're going to do, you know, 10 or 20 bars, 30 bars, mm-hmm. add up the beats and figure out, oh, we could play against it in six or this other meter and, and figure out where our math would drop and where, sure. where, we, where we'd come together and do a figure with them. And, uh, you know, Robert's very encouraging that the rhythm section is a front-line commodity in Crimson. You know, the mm-hmm. traditional American rhythm section is sort of sure. the backdrop for the sax or the guitar soloist or whatever it is, but uh, that's never been the Crimson uh, mode. Well, you've definitely had some opportunities in order to, let's call it, quasi-clear your head. You've been involved in a lot of conceptual or, you know, the way I describe them is, you know, experimental type of, of projects, you know, Tuner and, you know, BPM and M, which I totally love, you know. Uh, but you, you work with Marcus Reuter, and he, he's located in Germany. And uh, when uh, you guys, um, you know, I just heard one of the refresh my mind uh, today with uh, listening to one of the cuts. It's um, off your site. It's uh, Blackwell Monotony, yeah. which has vocals on it, which is really very interesting stuff. It's... Uh, um, how would you describe uh, the work that you're doing with with Tuner and uh, BPM and M? And because uh, I think it's so fresh. I mean, I just got so addicted to it. You know, I can tell you that the two you cite are, are quite different. The BPM record was um, something that started when I saw Robert do some soundscape shows with the uh, G3 tour. I took home a couple of his uh, soundscape CDs and built some beatbox stuff up at home mm-hmm. underneath it and. You know, showed that to Robert, and he was really excited about it, and um, tried to turn that into a record. I, I used my buddy Bill Munyan, an engineer. Uh, eventually, is what we, we settled down to, and because uh, uh, he could help me with the Pro Tools side of it, and and basically just just carved tracks, uh, stole bits of Robert and some bits of other uh, Crimson guys, and and rehearsal tapes and things, and and tried to construct. You know those little artifacts into a uh, into compositions. Um, the tuner thing is very different. Um, 
It's actually a small series of things I've done now. I started to do a record. I did do a record with Trey right after The Power to Believe. Mm -hmm. Um, Trey and I had done some songwriting and things in the hotel rooms that weren't used on the record, different little bits and pieces, and we had a time uh, available, so so I shot up to Seattle. Uh, Matt Chamberlain, a friend of ours, great drummer that has a studio up there, gave us his place for a couple weeks, and uh, so we just sort of improvised and, and worked on the little fragments that we had and kind of wrote a song every day, and after a couple weeks had our 10 or 15 pieces, and that that's what became the two record T U mm-hmm. and when we thought about that name, my idea was that you could you could uh do T U two plus two, like two people, and that we could try to find other duos to collaborate with. And mm-hmm. the first one we found was uh, or thought about the first one I thought about was was Chemo in Cluster. I'd met Chemo a few years before, so and I knew his manager Philip, so I rang him up and proposed this idea so we shot Trey and I shot off and did the gigs in Finland and Japan. Uh, and that's what became K2, was Cluster 2, the first couple gigs we did um, with Kimo and Samuli. And we we're continuing to work. Uh, I guess we've only done about 20 gigs now, but, but they're, it's, it's a great project, really wonderful, unique, different for us. Uh, yeah. um, you know, great place to learn, and, and we have a you know, decent follow, and we'll do festival gigs in Europe and do pretty well. I think we're going to get to play in America. We haven't played in America yet. But next uh, March, it's looking like we've got a couple festivals in Mexico, and uh, if we can pull the money together, that we'll try and grab an L.A. and New York and Chicago show. So, hey, Pat, what are you working on right now? What what kinds of things uh, are keeping you busy at, at currently? Well, the last week or two, um, when we did these last few Cock Robin shows, I toured with them this summer, and at the end of the first uh, round of touring in June, uh, it, it went really well. I booked five weeks to tour in November, but the last week, uh, Anna, the girl, came down and told us all she was pregnant. <laughs> so they've scrapped all that touring, and we're probably not going to tour again until sometime next you know, spring or summer. So the idea of how do we uh, keep that project alive, um, and Peter's idea was to make a live record. So we had two more festival shows uh, the end of August, one in Belgium, one just outside of Paris. And he taped those two shows. The first show in Belgium, we had a great show. We heard the board mix and were really, you know, blown away. It seemed like we had the best performance of the tour. Hmm. And uh, and to think that that was on multi-track, we could use it for the live record was, you know, we were stoked. And then uh, the next day when we went to the other show, we realized that nothing got to multi-track. They lost the, they didn't store the tapes right or something, you know, so that it all got aborted. Uh, so we were left with the one show, which was uh, outside of Paris, and uh, it was a, a rainy day. We didn't have a sound check and kind of went on cold, and it's not the best show we did. So the last week, that's what I've been doing here, uh, is, is tweaking. They sent me the, the tracks, um, you know, two-hour show, so about 20 songs, and uh, trying to figure out where things did or didn't get recorded very well, what's missing from the tape, or what, what I could, you know, I've overdubbed a few parts that don't seem to speak. They have to submix everything, so the drums are just in a submix, and the electronics are in a submix. So, mm-hmm. you know, if a shaker and a kick drum are sharing a track, and the shaker's too loud, you're not going to get any kick drum. You know, right? So I have to go back in and replace the kick drum, that sort of thing. Well, very cool. Well, Pat, thanks so much for spending time with us. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. 
if you want to find out more about Pat, for our listeners out there that want to find out more about him, they can visit your website at, at patmastelletto.com. And uh, you also have a MySpace uh, site as well, right? Doesn't everybody? You know, I guess so. I, I even have one. With my <laughs> daughter, you know, it had to, had to happen sometime. You know, she's been there for years. And all the good music I was hearing was coming from downstairs. And when I asked her where she found it, to be some band she found on MySpace. So I... Well, very good. Thanks again, Pat. We enjoyed talking to you. And uh, for Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. Special thanks to Pat Mastellato for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. Our goal is to bring you a new podcast once every other week. So be sure to check your podcast downloads for the next episode of Inside Music Cast. If you have a question or a suggestion for the show, please drop us an email at input at insidemusiccast.com. That's input at insidemusiccast.com with one C. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Stay subscribed to Inside Music Cast, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for downloading Inside Music Cast, the podcast devoted to the musicians, fans, and the people who make the music business happen. Your subscription is appreciated, so be sure to check your podcatcher for our next episode. You can also visit InsideMusicCast.com for additional content. If you'd like to contact us via email, the address is input at InsideMusicCast.com. 